Laughing and Weeping, the Year Beginning Conference. Over the New Year 2009 holiday, Father Richard Rohr and Russ Hudson presented a teaching of the Enneagram to over 600 people in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This is Session 4 with Russ Hudson, the Heart Center, Types 2, 3, and 4, with a response by Father Richard Rohr. So we're speaking about the heart this morning, but I want to give one suggestion before we do that. That doesn't mean forget our bellies. In fact, um, this is not like switching channels or trying to become more whole as human beings. And the more you stay with what we learned and talked about yesterday, the more we breathe, relax, sense the body, feel the substance of ourselves here and now, that gives a foundation to the heart that lets the heart do what the heart needs to do. If you tr we try to go straight for the heart without the support of our presence, without the support of our embodiment, we tend to get overwhelmed. And then we shut back down and get into our different little ego um, coping mechanisms. But if we want to really stay with our heart, we need to approach it from the body. Like it's a, it's a path up the mountain through the body to the heart. If you try to come top down, it, it doesn't really work too well. And just notice for yourself how just being here with your breath, with your body, gets a little easier to stay with what you're feeling, with what's arising here. The centers work together. They either work together to keep us in a pattern of ego and sleep, or they work together to support our awakening and our... Uh, receptivity to grace and each moment we have the possibility of shifting this way or that maybe the only choice we have so um, yeah and as, as you'll feel as we add each center it there can be a sense of coming together as a person one thing that always sort of cracks me up a little bit, just habits we get into in the Enneagram world. People so go, go around sort of like, well, I'm a belly type or I'm a heart type or I'm a head type, which is true. But then you don't exactly want to make that be who you are, if you see what I mean. It's like, why do you want to be a third of a person? <laughs> right? A human being is all three. The idea is to, an awake person is awake in their belly, awake in their heart, awake in their head. Now, we each have some capacities, something we're bringing to the party, and we each have issues. And you could even say that, well, to use the example of the heart, if I say I'm a heart type, in a certain way, my identification with certain issues of the heart prevents my heart from doing what it's here to do. I'm trying to make a self out of something, and so the heart can't. And same thing with the belly, same with the head. Like, we're tying up the function of that intelligence in trying to keep a false self going. So it, it, it stops it from its full expression. And we'll see how that is as we look at these heart types today. So I began um, yesterday evening uh, talking about the belly, or the instincts and how this embodiment, what it means and the, what it brings to us in terms of our sense of reality, our sense of presence, our sense of what's really here. 
the heart has a different function. And I touched on it briefly yesterday. It has a very different sense to it. The sense of the belly brings this fullness, substantiality, like a strength, a hardiness, uh, a sense of aliveness, vividness, uh, durability, a lot of things, will, strength, uh, and the quality of being. The sense of the heart is lighter. It's far more delicate. It's far more refined. Anybody been around an infant any time recently? You ever look at it, how amazingly, exquisitely sensitive and delicate the awareness and presence of an infant is? Like the slightest little thing affects them. You think you're having a bad mood two rooms away. The infant notices, reacts to it. Well, here's the deal. Everyone in this room was one of those infants. And we're all really busted because we really are that refined, sensitive, and affected by everything. A lot of what our ego has done in, in effect is to say, wow, I'm too sensitive, can't deal with it. What's a good way to turn this all down? Right? Which is an intelligent thing to do if you're a little kid and you're trying to cope with these feelings and ways you are affected by things. It wasn't a mistake, but you know, perhaps a bit of the baby got thrown out with the bathwater. And this wonderful intelligence of the heart got shut down for most of us in the process. Now, for those of you who think you're feeling people, I've got some bad news. What most of us call feelings are not the qualities of the heart that the Enneagram points to. If I may be blunt, what most of us call feelings are what psychologists would refer to as narcissistic reactions. You like me, I'm happy. You don't like me, I'm sad, I'm angry, I hate you. It's all about me, 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 me. Right? And what you think about me. Right? So all that reactivity is not abiding in the heart. Any more than running around like a chicken with my head chopped off means I'm actually connected with my body. Doing a bunch of stuff doesn't mean I'm connected with my body. I'm connected with my body when I'm connected with my body. I'm connected with my heart when I'm connected with my heart. In a certain way, I would say that the reactivity of the heart is like a surface. It's like the waves on the top of the ocean, right? But you can, with presence, we can drop down deeper than those waves and it doesn't exactly make us not have reactions, but it sort of smooths the surface a bit. And suddenly we discover this depth to the heart that's astonishing. We had no idea it was there. And when we come back to it, we remember, as we did with being in the body, like, oh, I forgot this was here. Everything I want. Now, the Sufis refer to the heart as an ocean. An ocean. And it's kind of like an ocean. And they also have this fun saying I love that the heart is an ocean and the body is the beach. And if you want to go to the ocean, it's a good idea to go to the beach. Right? So people have thought about this for a long time. So what does the heart bring us? If we actually do abide in the heart, if we just let ourselves be still, be here, take that moment to actually sense into ourselves, sense into this space in our chest and breathe into it, we feel this exquisite sensitivity and delicacy. It's like the body establishes I am. 
It's the sense of I am. I am here. I am now. I exist. It brings me to the moment, the sacred now moment. The heart then tastes the quality of the moment, what's actually here. With exquisite awareness, the heart knows what's here. Now, what is, so there's certain things that are the central parts of the knowing of the heart. One of them is the quality of now, the quality, the taste, the fabric, the texture of this moment. We usually don't notice it at all. But if you actually are present, you can actually feel there's a quality to this moment, an atmosphere, a taste, a fragrance, right? And every human being has the capacity to know that. It's like knowing it, spirit and grace isn't just like one homogenized thing. How boring would that be, right? It's endlessly presenting different, perfectly attuned flavors, bringing just the right quality to the moment to help us blossom. And we can know that through our heart. The heart is the knower of truth. It's where we know something's true. We don't know something's true in our mind. As a head type, I can tell you, I can think about something, you know, a thousand different ways between now and uh, the next hour. But I won't know what the truth is. The mind kind of says, I can see it this way, I can see it this way, I can look at it that way. The mind presents possibilities, but it doesn't know the truth. The heart knows the truth. Don't you notice that? When there is a, a true moment, you know it here. When somebody's being authentic and real with you, you know it here. If someone's saying something that's actually resonating in a way that you feel opened up, where do you know that? Right here. Heart knows the truth. So being in touch with it tells us the quality of our existence, tells us how we recognize the truth. Two more things as I'm running through these this morning. <laughs> the heart also is the place where we know who we really are. And knowing who we really are is something wordless. There's no concept for it. It's why, you know, making a new age statement like you are, uh, you are God, right, doesn't get you too far. Usually just increases our narcissism, right? <laughs> But there is a sense that if you're actually present with your heart, the magnificent mystery of who you are is just right here. And you know it's real because it's true of the other person too. You're more aware of who you're with. If I were going to put it in traditional religious language, anytime I'm here in my heart with another human being, didn't we once hear a line that says, there I will be also? It's true. We can know that directly. We can know what lives us. So we know the truth. We start to have the sense of who we are with this great feeling of reverence that comes with that. It's not forced. It's not some kind of um, efforted piety. It's a natural outpouring of the heart when we're present with the heart. The heart knows what's what. We seldom give its, its due. And the third part is very related, the heart brings us the sense of the preciousness of existence, of this existence, of my life, of your life, of this moment. It's, and to say value, preciousness, there aren't really tr great words for this. I'll return to this when I talk about type three. 
But there's an old-fashioned religious word that I think really hits the nail on what this feels like. Glory. The sense of the glory that's right here. That sense of glory that used to make people, and some of us maybe still say hallelujah, and mean it. That. You know what I'm talking about, right? So to be present in our heart is to have this exquisite reading of the moment, the tasting of what's here. And by the way, that tasting is the nourishment of the soul. It's what feeds and develops what's real in us instead of keeping our personality running. Any moment that we let ourselves be affected by this living sacred moment, by the gift of this life right now, something in us matures, something in us is fed, something in us gets the exact nourishment we need, where our soul is fed through the heart. So there's that nourishment. There is this sense of truth, truth being in one way the primary heart food. I do believe uh, Jesus said the truth will set you free. And it brings this sense of who we really are and this sense of the preciousness, meaning, value, the glory of our existence. Now, take that all away. Just like a like the old Etch-a-Sketch. You got all that just... It's gone. And now you got to live your life. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. Painful. To be disconnected from our sense of love. I didn't even talk about love. I will in a moment. Love, connection, truth, value, identity. Gone. You can see why most of us are kind of... Uh, trying to fake it till we make it, All right? And what the ego does that's so insufferable, so terrible, so painful, that it, it start, again, it tries to compensate. The ego is valiantly trying to hold us together, maybe until such time as something real could be established for us again. The only problem is once it's got the job, it doesn't want to retire, you know? Says, I got a pretty good deal here, <laughs> running everything for you. So if you, if you think about it, what happens is that we lose that direct contact with the heart. There's various phenomena that occur. We either detach from the heart in various kinds of dissociation or schizoid splitting for you psychologists in the house. Some of us become histrionic. That's like being emotional without a connection to the heart. Hysterical and histrionic. <laughs> no real connection. Doesn't mean you're connected with your heart. Right? In the way I'm talking about. So whatever we do, whatever little strategy we come, we're trying to find ways to get a sense of love, get a sense of truth, get a sense of value, get an identity. So where does that all happen on the level of ego? And a lot of what you see in this neck of the woods is the creation of some kind of self-image, self-concept, how we think about ourselves and how we try to get the world to validate that. What, remember we talked about Everybody got the song now, right? I didn't, I, I got lazy here. I didn't keep up here. Just quick review. Lust, sloth. 
resentment. Remember the, our top hits here. And we had a quick review, innocence. Uh, we had engagement. And we had serenity. Now we're going go to go green here. And um, these types, remember we said, had issue of don't mess with me. I don't want to be messed with. That's not the issue here. Now, it's true that probably twos, threes, and fours don't want to be messed with also, but it's not as important as something else. What twos, threes, and fours are looking for is attention. And their little th if this was, um, I don't want to be messed with, the two, three, and four is see me the way I want to be seen. See me as I need to see myself. And so, psychologically speaking, two, three, and four are looking for mirroring, recognition, validation. See me and confirm who I want to believe I am. Now, do eights, nines, and ones want that? You bet they do. Will they sacrifice their sense of autonomy, independence, and not being messed with for that? No. Will a two sacrifice my autonomy, independence, and feeling of not being messed with to get some attention and connection? Most days. So it's a question of priority. It's not like we don't have the other stuff. We do. But it's what we're most concerned about, most preoccupied with. Is that clear? So you can sort of feel which way your, your, your attention runs. So if you're a, a, a two... Well, we'll talk about all these in a minute. Before I get to the two, just to say that we can't help but need attention. It's not wrong. One thing that one of my mentors um, said that I loved was that we have to learn to have narcissism not be a dirty word. If you're an ego, you have narcissism. No ego can exist long without some kind of validating attention. In the ancient times, you know what was the punishment worse than death? ostracization, banishment, exile. No one could talk to you. No one could see you. No one could acknowledge you. How long do you think we'd keep our marbles if everyone we went up to turned their back on us? Right? This isn't a small thing. And so that little inner judge in us that thinks, oh, that person's being narcissistic, ought to look a little closer in that moment. Right? Narcissism is just how we try to sustain a self that isn't our real self. And if you have an ego, guess what you're doing? And you're trying to feed and sustain that false self. It can't exist without a lot of effort on our parts. And by golly, we give it a lot of effort. If we looked at how many minutes of our day we spend actually trying to sense into what's actually here, and what's here in the other person versus how many times we're worried about saying the right thing, looking good, making a certain impression, having people get how much we care about them, having feeling hurt because they don't get us and so forth. It's not even close. It's not even close. I'd say it's like a thousand to one. And that's for us folks who've been doing some spiritual work. <laughs> and if you think this isn't you, that in itself is something to examine. <laughs> right? And as we'll see, it takes a lot of tricking ourselves to keep this working. 
right? Now, why do we do it? Well, we do it because when we're little babies, we don't have the capacity for self-reflection. We don't. It, it develops a little later. But precisely when the child's sense of identity is coalescing is when the child is most dependent on what psychologists call mirroring. Right? And you know what that is. If any moms in here, dads too for that matter, when you hold that little baby and you're looking at the face and that little thing happens and they smile and you smile and then they respond, it's like the child's figuring out who I am in your eyes. So that's a very deep imprint. It started before we had words. So we're all deeply conditioned to think I only exist in your eyes. You seeing me makes me real. You see, that's not non-negotiable. Like some of us fives are schizoid about this stuff. We say, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I don't care if anybody sees me or likes me. <laughs> me think the lady doth protest too much. <laughs> we're just mad as hell we didn't get it. And we're on strike. Yeah? Some of my one and eight friends are going, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, we sort of, sixes, we're sort of the anti-narcissists. You know, I'm not narcissistic. I hate when people show off. I'm just mad that they're getting away with it. Yeah? <laughs> See? So, you know, we all have these issues. We've got to be real about it. And part of this part of the work is being kind and gentle. And here's where some good laughing can come in because there's plenty of room for tears here. Just how alienated we are from ourselves, how desperately we need this attention. And just being honest about that can do a lot for us. I say it's way healthier spiritually and psychologically to just notice, you know what, I'm desperate for your attention, then try to pretend that I'm not. Now, it's a step in the right direction. So that whole mirroring thing keeps us hooked on the idea that we got to get mirroring. And we do it in all sorts of subtle ways. And it's not always even externally with people. A lot of times we install people we love in our minds and we're always kind of doing it for them. Stay tuned for type three. If mom could only see me now. Yeah. But we're always like doing everything for us as if someone was watching us, approving us. We turn God into that. We think God's going to not like us if we don't do a good enough job and we're not loving enough and we're not magnificent enough. God loves us no matter what. So everybody get the, the feeling here? So I hope even if you're not a two, three, or four, you're having a few good gulps, you know. This is all of us. So let's start with type uh, two. Oh, I keep forgetting little notes. When we don't get the attention and validation, or we get the wrong kind, we have a different emotional reaction. It's not, sh it's not anger. I say in this zone, it's shame and hurt. The feeling of shame, that, that sense of, again, like when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and what, what reaction did they have? Did they become angry? They felt ashamed at their nakedness, right? And wanted to cover themselves. So that deep sense of shame, inadequacy, deficiency, emptiness, like I'm not good enough and I never will be eats at every ego. The more bravado I see in a person, the more I know that they're running from this feeling. 
How do we cope with that? Well, you get three menu choices. <laughs> three ways to deal with that sense of shame, inadequacy, hurt inside. Again, why is it that we don't stampede to, back to the heart, given the fact that, you know, we're going to find love and value and preciousness and our true identity? Why don't we? Because usually the first thing we encounter when we come in touch with our heart is the shame, deficiency, and hurt. And we bounce right back out again. We don't love ourselves enough to stay with it. And we don't, and that's not, we can't blame ourselves. We don't know that there's anything on the other side. Or we're just so convinced that such times as we have opened our heart, we remember things didn't always go so well. So we don't want to try it again. Make sense? So we need to be really kind with ourselves and others when we're looking at this part. It takes a lot of patience and gentleness. So... The, the two, the two in all of us is the part that most of all is about the love, right? This is kind of a no-brainer if you're a two. What you care about if you're a two and what your essence quality is, is about love. But we want to get a little more specific because, you know, the Greeks had the good sense to a few different words for love. We just got one word for it in English. We have a few other words like affection and but we don't have all the nuances of love. Here, it's the sweetness, the delight, the deliciousness of our hearts, the nectar of our hearts. The, it, it's exactly like when you see a newborn baby and you just want to eat them all up. You know that feeling? But it's bigger than that. It's vaster than that. It's, this, it's the sweetness you know, I remember when I was a little child and I thought of Jesus, the sense that filled me was this sense of this sweetness. Do you know what I mean? This, and it's not like a cloying, sticky sweetness. It's clean, pure. It just lets our hearts in being relax. It's this soft, nurturing, attuned intelligence of spirit that just says, relax. You're in the arms of love now. Everything's okay and you just melt into the arms of God. That quality. Do you know what I mean? That's the two's specialty. That's, if you're a two, whether you're a man or a woman, you have this magnificent capacity for what I like to call attunement. Attunement. It's a psychological term. Attunement is what makes a good parent. Like if you have a baby, the baby can't explain whether it needs to be changed or whether it needs to be picked up or whether the baby's tired. But if you're a, a tuned parent, you can tell. You, you, it's like it's, you can tune right into the need, the situation, and respond intelligently to that. And twos are responders. They respond intelligently to human need. And that's beautiful. Thank God there are people who do that in this world. Don't you agree? And nobody does that like a two. That, and if we even look at it more on a deeper spiritual sense, notice that that's the nature of spirit itself. The Holy Spirit responds precisely, more intelligently than anything we could figure out to human need. If you have a need, often it responds in a way you could not have predicted, but it was way better than what you would have come up with. That's just a quality of God. It's a quality of spirit, quality of being. And that's what we're talking about here.
So that's the specialty. The two really loves and is here to be a representative on earth of that part. Does that make sense? Is this, how many twos in the house? Is what I'm saying making sense to you? It's like what you live for. Now, as we disconnect from the heart, that we don't disconnect from the mission. We still want to attune, but to the degree that we're not present, our attunement goes a bit off, for one thing, because we're not in touch with the source of it, and something much more terrible happens. One person gets cut out of the deal, the attunement deal. Who's that? Me. Me. I have to be... Rather than being open to the attunement of spirit, I have to become the attuner. And that means that I'm not attuned to me all the time. Right? Now, one thing that Don and Don Riso and I have talked about a lot, and I want to just briefly insert this concept, we've written a lot about something called the levels of development, which I think is very important because it brings a nuance into the way we work with this. This stuff is not an on-off switch. It's not like you're all the way into some horrible passion or you're all the way in complete virtue and essence. Most of us are somewhere in between, right? And the question is, where am I right now? How open am I am to the real attunement and presence versus how much is my ego in its passionate way trying to concoct it? And there's a continuum there, a gray scale. So I would say twos are more present, they're more open to the presence of spirit, and I get attuned to also. The more I get locked into my particular thing, the more I get alienated from myself. I don't even know what I need a lot of times. I'm giving everything away while getting more and more brokenhearted because I feel there's no attunement to me. This sound like anything anybody knows? Right? You don't have to be a two to have fallen into that. I think pretty much any time you fall in love with someone, some of this comes into play. Right? So the, 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 vert, the, um, the passion here, the real quality is the sweetness, attunement, love. The passion is pride. And it comes from what I just talked about. Pride here in the two, generally speaking, is not some sort of gross showing off. It's not that. It's more, um, well, to be blunt, it's false humility. Oh, I don't need anything. I'm just here for you. I only am here to serve God, right? All that stuff. And man, does egoic religion, let's face it, traditional Christianity, a lot of it really plays into this, this, this particular passion. It encourages people to do it. Yeah? The ego doesn't know what real love is. Gives its best shot. But pride here is basically not acknowledging my own desperate human messiness, neediness, desperation. I've got to be the servant of God here. I've got to be working with the angels. I've got to be without needs. I've got to save everybody. And, you know, we can, uh, we can give total appreciation to the good intention in that. But it's tainted because I'm not being honest with myself about my own internal Messiness, need, wretchedness even, right? Pride doesn't want to acknowledge that, right? It's very painful. It's the two, three, and four all have to learn, and the two, three, and four in all of us has to learn the beauty of objective humiliation. 
in the sense our ego is going to be humiliated when it realizes it's not the one that's going to get the prize. Right? So for the two, and it's, it's a tricky passion, pride. It's got a little twist in it. Its very existence depends on not seeing it. So I have a lot of compassion for twos. It's like, it, first of all, you have to sort of recognize when you're doing it, and then you have to sort of be in your heart with it. In the simplest way, I think, that I know that seems to help twos that I've, I've loved and known and seen them grow, is just to start to bring some attunement and compassion to yourself. Now, the big bugaboo here is most twos I've ever known have a big inner critic message, thou shalt not be selfish. Can't be selfish. Nope, nope, nope. And so at first, paying attention to your own heart, to your own need, feels like being selfish. But it's not. If I'm not here with me, how can I be here with you? The last point I'll make about this is just the other thing twos are always seeking, and it's part of that essence quality, is when we're with that sweetness, with that quality of attuned love, the other thing that happens is we know without question that our hearts are in complete connection. When you're holding that baby or in that sacred moment with someone you love or even a stranger, and you see each other, there's that moment where your hearts just go bing, and you know that this, I know the source of my heart is the source of your heart. We know our hearts meet. Twos live for that. If I'm not with my heart, no matter how much I'm trying to connect with your heart, it can't work. And if I'm not willing to be with the neediness and sadness in my heart, I can't be with my heart. See how this works? So for the two, it's a journey of feeling, learning what it is to nurture myself and feel compassion for myself. Not self-pity, that's different. In the present moment, to just be with this hurting heart and know that that's not selfish. Okay? So the, the virtue here that develops when I'm able to do that... Trying to remember what word I like here. <laughs> Anybody remember? <laughs> yeah, I'll just use the traditional one, humility. Real humility is a reflection of God's grace for us. Humility is not, oh, I'm not important, I'm nothing. You know, there's the old Jewish joke, you know, the one of the two guys and, and one man is on the floor, oh Lord, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm just, I, I have nothing in your eyes, and one of his buddies looks over to the other and says, look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> that's all a self-image, that's self-concept. And truth be told, it, as in the joke, it's trying to draw attention to itself. Please see how much I'm, I'm putting myself last. Right? Please see how I'm waiting, holding the door for you. Please see how I cook for you every night and don't ask anything. Right? Now, it's not wrong to want that attention. This isn't to be judged. It's just to be seen and recognized. Real humility is exactly with that attunement and compassion. Humility is allowing the holding of your own human limitation and being utterly gentle, compassionate, and real about that. That's humility. 
That's humility. Jesus had the good sense to take care of himself from time to time. You know, he had enough of explaining things to the disciples. He'd go off and have some time by himself. Right? And so it's that. And that is cultivated and grows. And it shows other people what it means to be truly human and in real human connection. Does that make sense? I think it's all beautiful. Oh, aren't they all beautiful when you understand them in a certain way? Yeah. So let's look at the three. Quickly. <laughs> I've given a good overview of all this. The, um, the essential quality of the three or the core of the three, the essence of the three is what I was referring to before as that glory. The radiance, glory, value. Well, remember the old John Lennon song, Instant Karma? We all shine on like the moon and the stars and the sun. It's that sense of just seeing the glory, radiance, preciousness. And when it's real, it ain't just me. You know, it's not like I'm shining for all of you. <laughs> no, that's narcissism again. It's more everyone. When you're, when it, it, it comes as a package deal again. If I'm really here with my heart, I just feel the wonder, the gift, the preciousness, the glory of this existence right now, the opportunities, the possibilities, and I see it in you too. I just see your light and you see mine, and we just feel the glory together. That's what the three is really about. And the bonus part for three, and threes love this part, is that part of the glory is that we are human. We are human forms with minds, hearts, bodies, arms, legs, capacities, and that part of why we're here incarnated is to do stuff, to accomplish the great work, to participate, in what's trying to be revealed, what's trying to be unveiled, right? And we have been given gifts to do that. And it is our joy to express them, to function, to be fully human. Isn't that yummy? Well, that's the essence of three, right? But you see, when it's real, it starts here with the being with myself, being with this presence, and then what I do in the world is an expression of that connection with that glory, with that value, with that radical open-heartedness and sincerity. When I'm not present, the sense of the glory shuts down. The sense of the preciousness is gone. The sense of the meaning and value of me and my life is gone. When I look inside, I feel empty, like you know, the Tin Man in the Wizard of Oz, bonk, bonk, bonk. There's nothing inside. I feel hollow, deficient, and that's unbearable. Terrible, terrible feeling. It's like a feeling of utter worthlessness. So do you think the ego's going to take that lying down? Ego starts saying, well, what do I got to do to feel worthwhile? How can I find the glory? What do I need to do to get it? But you see, now I've got it backwards. When things are in alignment, the doing proceeds from the heart. But without presence, I'm doing to try to find my heart. I'm doing it to try to get that glory back. I think that I'll find the glory in the doing while remaining disconnected, and of course it can never work. 
though I'm going to give it the college try. Nobody's going to work harder at it than me, that's for sure. How many threes we got here? All right. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? All you're wanting is, and see, the other thing here, last thing is, remember I talked about the mirroring. The three was the child who most responded to the light in somebody's eyes when I was a little kid. I'd notice I'd do a little dance and they'd laugh and be delighted or I'd do this. It's called the practicing phase in psychology, right? And I'd do that stuff and it would just delight people and I just want to keep delighting people. I want to keep that light in their eyes. And even if that person that I so wanted to delight is dead, doesn't matter. They're still in my mind, aren't they? I'm still doing it for them, right? So part of the three is really the terrifying question, what is it for me? Where is the sense of meaning for me? I'm so deeply practiced in doing what the world expects me to do. What do I want? What is meaning and preciousness for me? And it's very difficult to find that without confronting that inner emptiness. I have to be willing to be with that. All human beings have emptiness in their heart. All human beings. If we keep running from it, it will never be healed. So three has a very heroic thing I need to do, which is to, in doing it for everybody, being willing to be with that, to hold that emptiness and kindness until the sun comes up again. And it does, I promise you. You know, we have to see that we're worth it. The ironic thing when I'm a three is that even though I'm doing all this stuff to be worthwhile, deep down, when it comes to me being with myself, I don't believe I'm worth it. You understand what I mean? We're so convinced that the real guy won't be here that we don't want to look. We're, we're afraid we're going to look in, it's going to be a big bust. So we just keep ourselves occupied. Huh? However, if we do take that journey and stay with our heart, this glory starts to come out again. It starts to reorganize our lives. It isn't that we need to burn all our suits and give up all the cool stuff we learned to do. You know, we actually take all those skills we've had in life and they start to be in service of our heart and what is knowing and in service to this glory. Does this make sense? Yeah. So then the, the virtue that arises is, I call it authenticity. Because now I'm congruent. Everything I'm doing, saying is an expression of this truth, sincerity, authenticity of the heart. And that truth and authenticity is itself the glory. Notice when somebody says or is doing something and it feels true, everything kind of lights up. That's it. Right? And you might think, oh, those poor threes, gee, all they get is to be authentic. <laughs> Do I have to say it? <laughs> like, what's the last, how many truly authentic interactions have you had in the last month versus the other ones? It's an enormous human achievement to be truly authentic. It would mean you knew something of who you were and who the other person was instead of turning them into what we turn them into. Right? So... So our last but not least, let me write these down. 
we had uh, the vanity. Vanity is the passion here, and that's that desperate desire to make the ego the real deal. It's the, yearn, it's the desperate heart craving to feel valuable and to be recognized and doing all sorts of stuff in service of that. And the, uh, and the virtue is, again, uh, authenticity. Okay, so four. Mm. <sighs> I have to take a deep breath. <laughs> the problem here is I fall into four sometimes because four in the essence of four is about the mystery of our true identity. The mystery of our true identity. When we're really with our heart, we start to feel like the back of us falls off. And there's a sense of infinite depth. Like the soul isn't just this little Casper the Ghost kind of glow around your body. It's, an in, it's a vast depth. Remember I said the heart is like an ocean? Well, it feels oceanic, deep, unfathomable, mysterious. And what I love to say that fours tend to respond to is the, as we start to sense with our heart this presence that is the identity, the objective identity, we feel beauty, the sense of beauty. I don't mean pretty. I mean beauty, the beauty of being, the beauty of the soul, the beauty of how the soul is appearing as the world. There's beauty, intimacy, and depth. And what, boy, oh boy, if there's something that fours live for is beauty, intimacy, and depth. But what am I after here as that? I'm after, the, these are the, the signposts, the the markers of grow, drawing closer to what the Sufis call the beloved, right? We're coming closer to our union with God. And in that union is where we know the source of our identity, what breathes us, what gives us the capacity to experience anything, the subject of our experience. You follow me? And what is that? Well, you can't say. You can't draw a line around it. You can put a word on it. It doesn't mean anything. But you sure know when you're getting warmer. You can feel as you sort of drop in. And we start, like, winking at each other. <laughs> like we know a secret. We know this great secret. You can't even say what it is, but you know what it is. Right? And just the delicacy, the depth, the intimacy, and just suddenly everything radiates with this beauty because you're feeling the presence of God in everything. Okay, now lose that. Let that drop away. Stinks, doesn't it? The world bereft of beauty, intimacy, depth, and the loss of any sense of identity. So what does the ego do? Tries to fix that, tries to produce a sense of beauty, tries to find intimacy, whatever it understands that to be, tries to create depth, damn it and find out who am I. Now the ego can only create identity through the way ego does it, through a process psychologists call individuation. What's that? I'm not like you. I'm different than you. I'm not like mommy, I'm not like daddy, I'm not like my sister Betty, I'm not like my brother Billy, I'm me. So then the ego is chronically individuating. 
kind of emphasizing difference. But at the same time, I'm emphasizing that difference. I'm trying to find this intimacy with you and with everything. It's a little bit of a conundrum, isn't it? It's going to be tricky to work that out. Fours get a little confused in the process, right? But what I'm left with is this terrible bereftness. One thing I'll say for fours is that they, for better or worse, they're not able to put to sleep their grief at their disconnection from God. So in a sense, four holds the place of not being able to cover that over and say, feeling the grief for our disconnection with the beloved. Now, the problem is fours will come up with all sorts of explanations for that that aren't the real deal. I feel this way because mom forgot to get me the doll I wanted when I was six. I feel this way because my math teacher was so mean to me. I feel this way because that last boyfriend was such a jerk. I feel this way because blah, 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 blah. And we create this narrative and this story about the, the, the woes I've seen. <laughs> you ask most people about their life story, very few people I've ever met will go, <laughs> what a laugh, let me tell you how great it was. <laughs> you ask people about their life story, well, and then my dad left, and... <laughs> and we think that defines us. All of it, we take the worst things that have happened to us and make that the defining experiences of who we are. Isn't that interesting? And not just fours, everybody does that. So we, we carry around this complicated narrative of how our life has been hard and difficult and envy, the passion arises because we envy, to really simplify it, is feeling like God gave me the short end of the stick. Everybody got it better than me. My life sucks. It sure has. And man, I've got this. I've been shortchanged. I feel hurt and I feel misunderstood. And, and God, my sisters got understood. Why didn't I get understood? And, uh, and it's this sort of protest to the heavens of why I got singled out for bad treatment by God. Now, that isn't to say, you know, some bad things could really have happened to me. It isn't to say that. But envy depends on the fantasy and the comparison with other people that somehow I'm more emotionally crippled than they are. Which I'm not. Don Riso, my writing partner, is a four, and he loves to tell the story of his spiritual awakening slash crisis. Where he was walking across Broadway around 1990, and he, got, he says, I took three and a half steps into Broadway, crossing the street, and a lightning bolt came down and hit me. And it was the realization there's not a damn thing wrong with me. <laughs> and he says, it was relieving and the most terrifying thought he had ever had. <laughs> because if that's true, who am I? My whole identity has been about how messed up I've been and how I can't get my life together, my romances. Even when I've got one, I feel like I don't have one. And, you know, all that stuff. Who am I then? If I'm okay, who am I? The punchline here is simply this. We all have gone through difficult experiences. Many of us have been traumatized truth be told. We've all had hurts. We've all been disappointed. One of my favorite quotes that we put in the Wisdom of the Enneagram book from, I, I believe, uh, a, um, 
psychologist named Andrew Barron was, it is difficult to love people who hurt and disappoint us, but there are no other kind of people. <laughs> so it's like, it doesn't to deny that these difficult experiences, but ladies and gentlemen, your identity is none of those things. That narrative is not you. What you are is a magnificent mystery, a manifestation of God existing now. And there's always the call of the beloved trying to call us home right now to this meeting of lovers. In this meeting of lovers, we find out who we are. And even in their despair, something in the four always knows and remembers that. This is the poetry of Rumi. This is some of the writings of St. Teresa of Avila. Right? This yearning, longing for the beloved. So when we get present, it doesn't mean necessarily that the longing goes away, but it gets purified as to what it actually is. And then we are gifted by the virtue of the four, which is equanimity. Now, equanimity might sound like the same thing as serenity, but it's not. Serenity, uh, serenity is the, this is what I get for saying a word and trying to spell another one at the same time. Um, serenity is a non-reactivity to the world. It's like a holding of the world in patience and compassion that lets me see right action. Equanimity is a, la is a, is a spaciousness of the heart that lets me feel whatever needs to be felt without rejecting that feeling or adhering to it. So I am not pushing any feelings away and I'm not getting stuck in them. Like all weather of the heart is welcome. And in that state, there's room and expansion for that, that longing to become a fire, a passion that can take me all the way to that marriage that we were all promised of the bride and the bridegroom. Isn't that a lot nicer way of thinking of yourselves? Who's a four in here? Does this give you some reason to get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, it's holy. See, we're all oriented and wanting something real. We're just going about it in a way that can't work. So I'm a little over. So I want to end now, but I just invite you as we go through the rest of the day and as you're with other people, let's do a little practice. I invite you. As you're interacting with people, we tend to merge and want to talk and sort of keep each other's egos going and, and make sure that we're all intact. See what it might be as you see people to actually see them. Take a moment before you speak. Actually see your neighbor, see your friend. See what's really here and let yourselves drop into the place where we're already connected. See how that feels. Because if we can't be present with other people, it's going to be really hard to do what we're called to do. So thank you. See you a little bit. I think I, like uh, Shirley, most of you, are simply uh, being blown away by the brilliance, the brilliance uh, of this teaching. Uh, 
And I'm not saying that because I'm supposed to say that or something. I, I, uh, I cannot believe the wonderful connections you're making for all of us, and, and uh, especially the compassion you're giving us for humanity in general um, and for ourselves, and the connection between the ability to find that compassion for ourselves and then to offer it to other people. They're just, what could be a greater gift than that? So, Russ, you've clearly done your work. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and you've done it in a way that is offering life to others, which is the best way to do your work, that it's not just your gift, you've made it a gift for the people. So we all, we all thank you tremendously. I, uh, I'm in awe, and I'm going to be uh, working with this material for months, I'm sure. I know it's, just, <laughs> it's very, very, very good, and I, I'm sure you're recognizing that. Uh, a wonderful lady, Kathy, came up to me at the break. It seems like God so often gives me right at the break my, my needed beginning point for my next remarks. And she said... Uh, could what Russ is saying about the void or emptiness, which I so agree is in all of us, uh, could that be uh, the very same thing as non-dual consciousness, <laughs> or at least an opening to it? And I said, you're right. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I, I described non-dual consciousness well enough. I said what it, I tried to say what it was not, and I tried to described the, the way we our polarity thinking works, that we tend to all think dualistically. But I think until you face that emptiness, you, you're probably not capable of non-dual consciousness. <laughs> uh, that's just brilliant. So the Holy Spirit sent you, Kathy, to, to, to tell me that. Um, you see, what, what non-dual consciousness does is it agrees to live with the mysterious. It doesn't insist on knowing. And that's why I think Jesus praises faith so much, to live with a certain degree of not knowing. That everything does not have to be said. We can live with unsaying. And again, why I love your teaching, Russ, is you're giving us this sympathy, even though you're grasping for words to describe the phenomenology of the inner experience. You're, you're not saying it in a dogmatic way. You're, you're le using subtle words that invite further knowing, deeper knowing. Uh, that's wisdom teaching, it seems to me. So non-dual consciousness is whenever you do not need to eliminate the mysterious, the unknowable, the scary, the problematic, that which you're not certain about. When you don't eliminate that, but you include it, you say, that can coexist. In fact, it has to. It seems to me when religion can start doing that, religion will again take on its proper humility before mystery. Instead of pretending, and it is pretending, I'm afraid, that we're certain about everything, that we have answers for everything. And I think this is why we find so many people so angry at religion today and why religion seems to be at the heart of so many wars and so much contention is because we've falsely given people the impression that religion gives you certitude. Actually, religion gives you patience with mystery <laughs> and the compassion with mystery that we, we see you talking about here. Tremendous patience with mystery because you're being held, uh, which is an experience you can't prove or describe, 
But once you've gone to that level of the void where someone else is holding you inside the void, then you don't need to hold everything else because you're being held. You follow me? <laughs> but when you, when you haven't had that radical experience of being held, you think you've got to walk around with explanations for everything or answers for everything which le re really reaches its low point, I think, in this, for some reason, this need to be certain about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. <laughs> that, that's what it comes down to. That's really what it comes down to. I mean, you want to talk about ego out of control. <laughs> the absolutely unquestioned ego, which, which wants a proper definition into eternity of where everybody's at and where everybody is in the pecking order of life. We have not done the gospel, Jesus, the world, ourselves any service by offering them this level of religion. And that's why I've said for years, it seems to me that fundamentalism, as commonly described, is probably the low level of religion. And you talk about evolution, in some ways we've devolved more than evolved <laughs> into this grand insistence on answers uh, and certitudes, which my little mind is, is uh, thought to be capable of. I have a, a chapter in my new book. I know we have a couple Jesuits here. They'll be very happy to hear me saying this. Uh, uh, on, a, uh, on a wonderful Jesuit. Uh, who died in 1984, I think, uh, a, a Canadian Jesuit named Bernard Lonergan. Now, it's probably a name most of you uh, won't run into. Maybe you won't ever study him. He's a rarefied Jesuitical thinker, <laughs> but really a brilliant one. And uh, I, I offer it at this point. So again, you don't think these are just Russ's ideas or even my ideas, but the bigger thinkers. Uh, much of his work was coming up with what he called a theory of knowledge. He said that after the scientific consciousness took over, which was very practical, provable, empirical, it became very hard not to think of God as merely pie in the sky, mere subjectivity, because clearly this God could not be verified in any laboratory or with our newly discovered scientific software. And so he predicted you know, a rise in disbelief, agnosticism, atheism, because we had idealized the scientific method of knowledge. And uh, with that being thought of as the method of knowledge, he saw religion, the Catholic Church included, as trying to fight back with the rational mind by another rational mind. Because we took on their weapons, if you will, to fight against secularism, rationalism, and he said, we're going to lose. <laughs> Because that's not our language. That's not our gift. We have a completely different gift to offer. He said what we needed, and I'm, I'm quoting a bit here from, from my own book, but I brought it here. He said we need a new foundation for knowledge because the old foundations uh, will no longer work. He was fascinated by the scientific mind and method and rightly felt it had much to offer religion because it created the good and necessary critical thinking. But he also insisted that we had a lot to offer the scientific mind too. So it could be 
uh, humble before mystery, which is what we see in quantum physicists and, and astronomers and, uh, today. You know, I think we even have a few here who know what I'm talking about. And they recognize the mysterious and they don't need to quantify it or understand it. They can deal with black holes and, and dark matter and not say everything needs to be explained to honor it or to recognize that it's there. Uh, at any rate, Lonergan, while never denying the value of the scientific mind or objective truth, and like I said, you've got to first be good at dualistic thinking before you can go beyond it, and he's a classic example of that. He claimed that most religious people, and he was criticizing our own church, have an exaggerated view, that's a quote, an exaggerated view of the objectivity of truth, and especially their capacity to understand it. <laughs> right. So they insist there is objective truth. That's what fundamentalists love to say and the Vatican loves to say. And Okay, in principle, I agree with that. Yes, 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 yes. I'm not denying objective truth. But his second part is the most important thing. What you've exaggerated is your capacity to understand objective truth. And it's so strange to him and to me and to many of us that scientists who are supposedly the unbelievers, the secular humanists, have been quite willing for decades to live with theories, with hypotheses, until more information arrives. Isn't that interesting? Talk about humility. But we clergy have to have total and absolute truth from the day we're ordained, all right? <laughs> Now, now, just given that, who is going to really come to truth? <laughs> Those who leave the field open and humble before it. And, and we would say in our language, keep praying and keep listening and keep getting my ego out of the way. So he taught the only real way that we could find objectivity today was ironically to help people clarify and heal their subjectivity. That's what you're doing, right? <laughs> the only way you can help people find objectivity today, ironically, is to help them clarify and heal their subjectivity. It doesn't do any good to send out papal mandates, this is the objective truth, you understand? <laughs> because that's going to be heard on at least nine different levels, we've learned here. <laughs> Uh, Ken Wilber would, would uh, say uh, at least nine different levels, not using the Enneagram. All the people with their theories of knowledge are saying there, there's five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten levels of, of consciousness. So there might be such a thing as objective truth, but everything that is received is received according to the manner of the receiver. Uh -huh. And what, what the Enneagram is doing, I think what healthy religion is doing, is working with the receiver station. Do you understand? We're not denying objective truth. But, but it doesn't do much good to just keep throwing it out in forms of words and presume, because you got those words correct, everybody got it. Even uh, so-called Orthodox Christians who say, I believe this. If you'd sit down with them, all right, take any doctrine or dogma you want. What does that really mean in your mind, right? And you get 55 different understandings. But all we insist on is believe it. Okay, I believe it. So we've all agreed to believe it. But what the Enneagram and teachers like Russ Hudson are having the courage to do is go underneath that. 
and say, okay, we're not even going to fight you on that level. It's fine if you've got objective truth, but let's work with the soul. Let's work with the heart, with the gut, with the mind, and recognize all the way that it blocks it, resists it, opposes it. And yet I think what you're doing in your own unique way is uh, that, that starting with the, the holy ideas is our enneagrammatic way of saying, there is an objective beginning. Do you understand? It's our way of saying there is an original blessing. There is a starting point that's positive. And in this, we're very aligned with the first chapter of Genesis. God created it, and it was good. Right? God created it, and it was good. And as you note, if you read the uh, creation story in Genesis, that is said on every day of creation, except two of the days. I've said this here in previous years, but let me say it again in this context. If you go back to Genesis, reread it. In the day when earth is separated from heaven, it does not say it was very good. And when dark was separated from light, it does not say it was very good. Now you want to talk about inspiration, right? <laughs> All the rest of the days of creation are good, but this tendency to separate, in our case, laughing from weeping, and putting us into a dualistic mind of separating reality in an either-or world, this does not lead us to surrender to the void, surrender to the mystery, surrender to the now. And the now always includes both. Every single now, if you'd be honest about it, has some things you like about it, but there's always a little bit that makes you uncomfortable, dissatisfied, impatient. If I could change it, I could change this. So those chairs you're sitting in, it'd be nice if they had arms, wouldn't it? Huh? I mean, you can find something wrong with every moment. Huh? Uh, or you'd probably like it if I were a little taller or whatever, <laughs> or if I wasn't bald or whatever. Everything is something, oh, I wish I could tweak that, you know? Now, I'm probably talking like a one. I surely am, right? <laughs> but, but I know it's true of all of us. Uh, we live inside of that eternal dissatisfaction. Now, if we can go to the dissatisfaction and hold it compassionately, lovingly and patiently instead of trying to change it that uh, where else would peace lie right where else would will happiness ever be found huh? now what we did with religion is we we saw this disordered self this disordered world and we gave you the impression and most religions did it not just christianity because it's the ego need that our job was to create order out of disorder, right? And so wherever there's a little uncleanliness, that's why religion usually starts with purity codes. So our job is to eliminate the dirty, the foul, <laughs> the, the, uh, the unacceptable, usually localized in the body. That's why many religions have dietary codes and cleanliness codes, huh? always to do with the body. Get rid of the impure, and what's left is the pure. I want to say this as strongly and as proudly as I can. The wonderful thing about Jesus and why he's such an unlikely founder of religion is he doesn't do that. He has no need to eliminate the negative, right? 
He has no need to create a little country club of superior people who, who are not uh, weeping. He says, blessed are those who weep. <coughs> he includes and it actually makes necessary the recognition of the negative and the wounded. So you could say, Jesus is not trying to make order out of a disordered world. That, in my opinion, always creates smug and destructive and eventually violent religion. Right? What Jesus does is give you the insight, the freedom, the power, the grace to live gracefully inside of a disordered world. Because huh? it always will be. It always will be. That's why we named our conference Laughing and Weeping at the same time, very often. Now, that doesn't mean that a certain degree of healing and order won't be brought about by your ability to hold them together within yourself. That's the mystery. That's the transformation. That you hold them together and you're still happy. You hold it together and you're not needing to eliminate the so-called dark people, homosexual people, bad people. You, 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 you get rid of that eye that needs to, to look for the unsavory types, right? The handicapped types, the unworthy types, the disabled types. <coughs> Excuse me. We've, we've wasted too many years there. But it, it's inevitably, it seems, where religion starts. That it thinks that that's the answer. And once you set out on that course, it never ends. Because you never get to this perfect world. <clears throat> and so what you have to do is uh, invariably pare down to a smaller and smaller, I don't know if I can, I'll try. Uh, a smaller and smaller group of people who are just like you. <laughs> uh, that's what happens to most churches. As they go on, it's only white people. It's only white middle class people. It's only white middle class heterosexual people. It's only whatever it is, you know. And, and then this group smugly hold hands and call themselves saved, you know. <laughs> it's sort of unbelievable when you think of it. This cannot be a pattern for the liberation of this planet. Do you understand? <laughs> this will not save the world. This is no bridge building to anywhere. It is truly a bridge to nowhere that we heard, heard about so much. It, it, it does not build bridges. It largely spends much of its time building walls huh? to keep out the other races, the other religions, anybody who isn't like me. So that's, that, uh, that's bad narcissism. I was very glad you described the good name of narcissism. It probably wouldn't be narcissism anymore, but still, to make the point, you have to say that. huh? That, yeah. And um, there, there, there's the two sides to everything again. So I think what we're both trying to encourage you to do is, is to recognize that the anagram, like few other tools, uh, refuses to eliminate the negative. In fact, in the early years, you remember, so many people dismissed the anagram because they said it's a negative system. Right? It's a negative system. It starts by teaching you to weep. And yet we became convinced that the wound that we were all signed with on our hands last night, huh? um, the wound is not to be eliminated. In fact, it is the entranceway. This is genius. Now you find order through the embracing of the wound, the disorder, not the eliminating of disorder. 
that this could reform, this will reform. I don't know what else will ever reform religion or, or politics except this kind of non-dual thinking where, where you hold the mysterious, you hold the unknowable, you hold the wound, you hold that which is broken and poor, to use Franciscan language, and, and you do not run from it, you do not deny it in yourself, or you do not need to eliminate it in other people before you can love them. Or as you said, we'll never love anybody. We will eventually find an excuse, and you will eventually find the broken, wounded, dark part of every single human being. <laughs> and it will give you another excuse to circle the wagons around a smaller group of people <laughs> till you discover that, that there's, there's no one worth loving. So thank God, God does not love that way. God does not seem to need to eliminate the negative to love us. And for most of us, that is literally unthinkable because we don't know how to love that way. <laughs> we have been trained to eliminate the dark side, and then that person is worthy of my love. Do you see? Where what grace does is absolutely break down that need. And, and I like it, Rusty, you keep saying that uh, grace is, is most often experienced in the void. I wonder if it can be experienced any other way. When you let go of your logic, you let go of your dualistic explanations. You let go of your need to, to make it ordered, right, perfect, <laughs> uh, according to whatever your description of the right or the perfect might be. So uh, I think I'll just leave it at that uh, for now. But again, I want to repeat what I said the very first night, that for me, the weeping mode and the laughing mode are, are a different level of being then the fixing mode, the critiquing, the judging, the explaining, and the understanding. You see? It's a different mode of being where, where it, it kind of accepts reality in the full body blow that reality is. And at that point, you, you either laugh or cry. And the anagram, like few other tools, leads you, as you've been leading us, Russ, to these moments of just weeping over our beauty uh, that, that original goodness that we all are, huh? and uh, laughing over our sinfulness, oh, almost the opposite of what we expected. Did you hear how I said it? Weeping over your beauty <laughs> and laughing over your sinfulness. <laughs> Maybe you would have thought I'd say it the other way. But, but I think when you see you're true, that, that there's a part of you that is always loved, that is always known, that has always said yes to God, that's what we mean by the soul. <laughs> that's the best definition of soul I can give to you. The part of you that is always known, that is always loved, that has always said yes to God. The part of you that is already with God, in union with God. No church gives you that. No sacrament gives you that. No priest gives you that. All we can do is remind you of that. Do you see? And, and, and when you learn how to draw your life from that source, when you learn how to live from that place and say, that's my true place, that's my original blessing, that's who I really am in God, that's who I really am in eternity. When you can more and more, and all things being equal, as life goes on, you should be learning how to trust that place, draw from that place, rely upon that place, then heaven is not later, but it's now and tomorrow.
you see? <laughs> that repositions the entire nature of the spiritual journey. Thank you. For more information on this and other conferences presented by the Center for Action and Contemplation, call 505-247-1636 or visit the CAC website at www.cacradicalgrace.org.